Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Redemption. Not a word one would associate with Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, or Jeffrey Dahmer. But what about an 11-year-old boy who, in 1889 in rural Iowa, murdered his abusive parents as they slept, sparing his one-year-old sister who was sleeping in the same bed? The Plea. The true story of young Wesley Elkins and his struggle for redemption might help you answer that question. Authors Patricia L. Bryan and Thomas Wolfe join me now on this edition of Murder Most Foul. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here with you and your audience once again. Well, you're welcome. I should point out to my audience at this point that Tom and Patricia are husband and wife and have worked on uh, several projects together, including uh, this book. So um, let me start with you, Tom. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the subject of The Plea, Young Wesley Elkins. Um, Wesley Elkins was um, born in Iowa in um, 1878. And I would, one more thing about him being isolated at, at age nine and when he was pulled out of school, his father sent him to work at, at his sawmill. His father ran a sawmill. And so here, there he was, nine years old, working in this sawmill. And he was a little kid. We know that uh, when he was 11, when the murders were committed, he was um, 74 pounds. So he was probably not much more than 55 or 60 pounds when he was forced to work all day in the sawmill with his father. So it's a kind of situation that's a little bit hard to relate to, to think of kids that age in America at that time, having that kind of responsibility and working under those conditions. But um, it's true, that's the, yeah. that's the way things were then. And of course, neighbors did not want to intervene. You know, that was what happened at that time, whether it was any kind of domestic abuse, there was a feeling that men basically were allowed to discipline their wives and certainly their children. Um, there was certainly evidence that some neighbors knew that Wesley was mistreated. And you know, one family tried to intervene at least to say Wesley could come live with them not to the father, they didn't say that, but to the brother. The brother never relayed that message. Um, and again, it was up to the parents. The community did, would not intervene in those situations. So it appears Wesley really didn't have many options. Well, we know that he began to think about how he could get away from his parents, and he had realized that he could not run away without being brought back so that his only option, as he saw it, was to kill his parents and to then be on his own. Um, he did have older half-siblings who he thought he might be able to live with. Um, he doesn't ever express directly what his planning was, 
but we do know that there was a rifle in the house and that there was a club that he had stored outside the house so that he did premeditate the crime and he did have weapons to use. And as you note, and as is true in a lot of studies, um, when the abused victims decides to strike back, he or she usually strikes back with extreme force because they realize if they don't finish the job, they are going to be in big trouble. So the crime itself was very brutal um, and premeditated, as I, as I noted. And, um, and it was something that he had thought about for several days. The gun actually was in his room on a hook. Um, it was his father's gun, but he knew how to, how to use it. And um, he, he says that he stared at the gun and thought about the crime. So we know that um, it was premeditated. Although he also says he must have lost control. I mean, he had a bad headache. He must have lost control. Um, we also, Tom and I did a lot of research into abused children who kill. And we found that, just as Tom says, um, there, and this is especially true with children, um, they often use unnecessary force, partly because they don't understand death. Um, they don't understand that it is permanent. Um, and of course, it was his only means to escape. I mean, we don't, we wouldn't necessarily call it self-defense then, although our ideas about self-defense have changed. Um, when you think about what's called the battered woman syndrome, if it's your only way to get away, you might not be in imminent danger, meaning that a weapon is at your face, but it could still be defined as self-defense. Not that that was the law then, or would have been accepted, not certainly. Um, but he, yeah, he used unnecessary force. Uh, he, he used a lot excessive of force, force, excessive yeah. force, yeah. right? He shot his father in the face. He beat his mother, stepmother to death. And then he, you know, on the face, on the legs, he turned to his father then not being sure he was dead and clubbed him. The one-year-old was in the bed with the parents. And Wesley took the baby, walked to the bed, took the baby, and changed her clothes in the other bedroom, as he admits. Yeah, so that's what happened during the night. And um, we don't know exactly what time. It was sometime after midnight. Um, but when it got light, he then took the baby um, and went out, hitched a horse to a wagon, and went into the neighborhood to alert his brother to the fact that his parents had been killed. And um, he did not admit, of course, at, at the time. He thought it, he indicated that a stranger had done it. He didn't know who had done it. But um, he did continue to, to communicate to his brother and to neighbors um, his version of what had happened. And he, before he gets to his brothers, he does alert a, a neighbor who is actually the owner of the land that um, his Wesley's father rented. Um, so it's the, um, and that uh, person's name is John Porter. It's actually how the book starts with Porter seeing the wagon coming up the road with Wesley in the driver's seat. And Wesley hands off the baby to uh, Mr. Porter, who then gives it to his wife so that the baby is 
safe and taken care of. Wesley goes on to alert his brother. John Porter then calls and wakes up his son, and they go down to the house where they discover the bodies. And I will say, you say the baby was covered in blood. So was Wesley. There were specks of blood on him. So my guess is, he doesn't ever say, my guess is that he cleaned himself up somewhat. He he does appear in front of the inquest jury the next day in the same shirt he had worn. And when asked, he said, well, he only had two shirts, I think he says. Um, So he he might've cleaned himself up, but he obviously or surely did not change shirts or clothes. Right. Um, and in that day, I'm hearing this more and more about cases, which I was, was unaware, this inquest concept that happens, you know, when the body is wherever it is, if, you know, if it's in a, you know, place you can get to not falling off a cliff and uh, you bring in that they're just normal people. All right, six people here. You know, what do you think? And obviously you say you can indict a ham sandwich. You can inquest uh, a turkey sandwich. I don't know. So the, they sit there and go, yeah, this doesn't look like an accident or this doesn't look like uh, natural causes. And that's really all they need at that. Or point. suicide. Or right. suicide, right. <laughs> so at that point, it's just this is homicide of some kind. And, and that's their only, you know, connection. I mean, that's their only job at that point. Uh, yeah, well, the hope under the law is that if the inquest jury makes a finding that a specific person did it, that would be grounds to file a warrant um, with a magistrate and the magistrate would issue an arrest, an arrest warrant to file a motion with the magistrate um, if the inquest jury had found a specific person. In this case, they did not. Um, they did not say that Wesley Elkins had done it. Um, and he hadn't confessed at that point, of course. Right. He stayed with his story all the way through the inquest. And he actually was interviewed three times over the course of the in- inquest, three different times because they brought him back to clarify points that um, other witnesses had had said in terms of um, relating about the family um, disturbances and all what the family situation was was like. Um, there was one um, inquester who did think that Wesley um, was culpable and that they should have named him as the suspect, but the, the majority of the inquest jury did not feel that way. So, And the sheriff who was involved, he wasn't on the inquest, but um, the sheriff who was at the at the scene also thought that Wesley's story was credible and that he didn't believe Wesley could have committed the crime. And that was kind of the split in the community at the beginning. The Wesley was obviously the, the most credible suspect. He was at the scene. He reported the crime. There was no evidence of a break-in. There was no evidence of anybody else being in, in the room. But on the other hand, he was 11 years old and 74 pounds and didn't seem physically capable of committing the crime. So the community split um, initially on whether or not he could be considered uh, a suspect. Well, and one other point um, which um, added to the community split was that his birth mother had left her husband, which Wesley's father, which was unusual for the time. And that they had had a very tumultuous relationship. Um, And she was, she had come from another part of the state um, was looked down upon as an immoral woman um, by the community. She eventually left her husband, and the story was that she had gone to live with a lover in Waterloo. 
And the story was that she had tried to kill John Elkins, Wesley's father, before she left. So there was this notion that Wesley had been born to a woman who had a criminal mind, in effect, and that he might be born evil. I mean, that ad, he didn't look like he could do it, although there was a prevailing notion of this, you know, a born criminal. So uh, it wasn't long, though. This wasn't, the, you know, a long investigation. They, uh, was it based, did he break or did they just really figure that, uh, you know, charge him based on everything they had? Um, he basically broke about seven or eight days after the crime. Um, he was taken first to live with his aunt and uncle and then to live with the sheriff. He actually lived in the sheriff's house in El Cater. And there was uh, an attorney in that town who thought that Wesley was guilty, who would come and take Wesley for buggy rides and sort of get to know him and was trying to talk to him about the crime. And he eventually um, was able to elicit a, a confession of sorts from Wesley that this attorney then wrote up um, and presented to, uh, to a judge. So that's really when the case broke and Wesley broke down and admitted the crime. And that, I believe, was eight days after the, the murder. Yes. And I will say, and we talk about this in the book, that the attorney who got the confession from Wesley was a very ambitious man. And there is certainly evidence that he threatened Wesley. Um, you know, that this is what happens to someone who lies. And he talked about a hanging that he had seen. There's no dispute that Wesley committed the murders. But the confession, and Wesley never disputed that, um, but the confession that this attorney wrote out is very detailed, goes into um, the premeditation, talks in detail about how he committed the murders. And there is some question that we raise in the book, and certainly we had, whether those were really Wesley's words. Um, you know, he's 11 years old. Would he really have spoken in such a chronological manner um, and so coherently? As you point out, Jim, he was not an educated young boy at that point. Um, now, there, certainly at, that, at that point, there is no Miranda that comes a lot later in history, but there is a Fifth and a Sixth Amendment. Um, would they not have applied? And I know that a lot of it has to do if it's a child, it has to be exerted by the parents or a child is, um, this is my, I'm talking modern legal from what I know, that a child can't give up the right, uh, their constitutional rights. Um, so again, appealing to the lawyer, what was, what, now again, it doesn't, it doesn't mitigate that he is saying, yes, I did it, but we still have, you know, a, a, a country of laws and procedures. Were they all violated? Well, you can go. Yeah, I, I would say that we definitely questioned whether or not the um, confession was freely given. And we definitely questioned whether or not the words in the confession were Wesley's, because the handwritten confession was written out by the attorney, and then Wesley signed it. So Wesley acknowledged that those were the facts, right. but um, we don't believe he wrote them down. And we know that the attorney understood, and Patricia can speak to this more than I can, understood what the conditions would need to be for a first-degree murder charge and made sure that all of those conditions were in the, um, in the confession. Well, and I will say, the attorney did not write out 
all of those words at the time he was in the buggy, um, that Wesley was with him. He said that Wesley confessed, Wesley signed his name, and then subsequent to that, um, the attorney went back and wrote this detailed statement. But as to your point, Jim, about were his rights violated, the confession, we think, was not freely given. Now, even without the confession, there was certainly evidence that most likely would have convicted, um, led to a conviction of Wesley. But one of the things that we believe and talk about in the book was that his the attorney who was assigned to represent him really did not do justice for Wesley. Um, the first attorney assigned eventually um, resigned and said he was too repulsed by the facts of the murder to go on. The second attorney um, basically agreed with the prosecutor that Wesley should go to jail for the rest of his life. Um, and even though there was a legal rule well established at the time that a child under the age of 14 should be presumed to be innocent without definitive proof that the child knew what he was doing, something that never came up. The lawyer never brought up that rule. Um, and he believed from the beginning, he says later, that Wesley had no defense. So it, it yes, we believe his rights were violated, but no one really cared about that. I mean, the community was happy to see Wesley go to prison. First degree murder, first degree murder for the murder of his father. Um, he was not indicted for the murder of his stepmother. Um, they knew that one murder charge was enough and he pled guilty to first degree murder. His, you know, you can imagine 11 year old boy, the lawyer says you must plead guilty or you're going to be hung. He probably would not have been hanged or hung. Um, that was what he was threatened with, however, so he pled guilty. That there was a kind of rush to judgment. And so the fact that Wesley had inadequate defense is understandable because no attorney in that county who had political, you know, political and um, professional reasons to be liked in the community was going to give him much of a, um, much of a defense. So he didn't really have anybody to defend him um, or even to acknowledge um, what the law was that would have protected him. Well, and a little interesting fact is the lawyer who got him to confess um, immediately filed for a $500 reward that the governor had issued. I mean, the governor had publicized $500 for anyone who brings the murderer um, forward. So immediately he and several others filed for this $500 reward, which was a lot of money in those days. Yeah. And, you do, and you do mention in the book, uh, I don't know if he ever got it, but he had to go through at least more than one governor and, and maybe even he didn't get it after that. We found no record that the, the reward was ever paid. Although he went on to write letters for several years, yeah. about five years saying it is me who did it. He had affidavits that it is, he was the one who 
got the confession, but there were several other people who were also claiming. Yeah, one of the men on the inquest jury said, well, I was the first one to say Wesley was a, was a, should be arrested, so I should get it. Um, now, now, so now in 11, again, there wasn't a jury trial, so we don't have to go through deliberations and the rest. And this 11-year-old boy is, is uh, um, sentenced to what? Life in prison at an adult male um, pr prison, Anamosa State Penitentiary. But that was sort of like a country club place, right? <laughs> um, well, there weren't a lot of violent criminals there, but it was an adult prison. Um, everyone there had to work. And it was certainly, it was, it was a beautiful physical facility, but it was not a place one, one would want to live their life. No, and they were, um, they had different grades of prison, prisoners. And the lowest grade was not treated well. I mean, they were kept in their cell um, for meals. They were disciplined. There were some <laughs> strict disciplinary measures that were imposed. Um, and, you know, there was solitary confinement at times. So, and, you know, they had to um, walk in lines with their hands, uh, their arms <laughs> outstretched on the prisoner in front. They couldn't talk during meals. It, it depended in part on the warden. Um, you know, the second warden we talk about who was there during Wesley's tenure um, was much looser than the others. You know, he played cards with some of the prisoners. They went to an empty place and had a little two burner stove um, where they cooked. But, but that, was not, that, that was only for the highest, you know, the, the best behaved, the ones the warden liked. So it wasn't quite a country club. <laughs> <laughs> to have no one no one who's going to visit you, nobody who's going to care about you, nobody's going to write you a letter, nobody's going to do anything. And you're just lifted up from this chaos of, of the crime and, and, and taken to a place. And you're going to, I, 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 I'm speechless about it because the concept of comfort for now, he was probably older than his years, but still 11 years old, 70 pounds, tiny little guy. And like you said, in the book, we don't get indication that he's raped or anything like that. But I can't imagine how lonely he had to be. Well, you know, Wesley was fortunate in a way because prison philosophy was going through a transition at that time. And the wardens were a new professional class who really took rehabilitation very seriously. And they took the best ones, and Anamosa had one of the best ones, took a personal interest in prisoners that he felt could be reformed. And he, Warden Barr, the first warden who interacted with Wesley, had many children of his own. He says later, and we quote this in the book, that he was so taken aback when he saw this small boy who was frail and nervous, and it, he, was, he really treated Wesley well. Um, he told Wesley, and this would motivate Wesley for the rest of his life, that if he repented of the crime and showed that he was changed, that he could win his freedom. He talked to Wesley, he had the chaplain talk to Wesley, he made him an errand boy, in the offices, um, and 
The next warden, as we talk about, assigned him to the library. So they really did. I, I mean, I think it was the first adults who really took an interest in him. So different than what we think of prisons today. Um, we do know that he really took to the idea of being in the library and that reading became an obsession with him. Um, and it was a pretty well-stocked library, you know, and this is, you know, 19, you know, the actually before 1900, but it was a, a library with a lot of books and a lot of opportunities for him to read. And if, as Patricia has mentioned, he had mentors, um, the, the prison warden um, and the, um, the chaplain at, at the at, at the prison. So he wasn't out in the prison population the way the more adult men and the stronger men were because there was construction going on. There was farming. There was farm animals. There was the kitchen to run. I mean, most of the men in the prison who were not confined to their cells Sorry. all the time were out working um, and working doing very physical labor. And as Patricia said, Wesley was initially just sort of an errand boy in the warden's residence. I mean, he felt very comfortable with with Wesley interacting with his wife and children. And now, then eventually the, in the, in the library. Have, do we have any indication there was anyone even close to his age? No, I think the next youngest would have been 18 or 19. 15. 15. 15 or 16. But very, there was one and then I, we don't know what happened to him. I will say one thing about the prison was that the town took a great interest in the prison. Um, and, you know, they were proud to have the prison. It meant jobs for people in the community. And they watched the first men file in. They called them our prisoners. Um, in the beginning, they had a picnic on the prison grounds with the townspeople. Um, the men, prisoners and townspeople smoked cigars together. They played croquet. Um, so that part of the way that library came about is that people in the community donated the books. They donated newspapers, they donated magazines, the Ladies' Aid Association you know, stocked the library, ministers came to talk to the prisoners. Um, so it was really so different. Than we, might, our, we might say enlightened. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was yeah. an enlightened, yeah. Yeah. And really believed in rehabilitation. It wasn't just locking up and throw away the key. Um, and Wesley seemed to be a perfect candidate. A and the wardens were really wanting there to be evidence of their success, you know, that they were able to bring someone back into the community. Now, the, only, the only way for that to happen, of course, given a life sentence, is parole. And who start? And that's a big part of like the last third of the book. The frustration—I'll use the word—the unfairness. Given again, you give examples of these four people who were, you know, like killing and butchering children. Oh, they got a, a pardon or parole, and he did not. And some of it's a technical and all that. And again, it's all very clear in the book. But who started the ball? In other words. Did he get a, a, a bug in his bonnet? I mean, who who supported him and who, um, at 11 years old, who put together the legal paperwork or whatever would have happened at that time? Um, well, I'll just start with this. Patricia really is the expert on in this area. But um, we know that Wesley was informed by another prisoner that there were law books in the library and that there were legal cases that he might look into. And so Wesley began, I think he was probably around 14 or 15, 
at this time began looking into the law and came across a case that indicated that if you were younger than 14, you couldn't be charged with a crime unless you could be proven to have, have adult sort of capabilities of right and wrong. And so that's what got Wesley started. And he took that information to the warden. And Patricia can kind of pick up there because that's what she's really studied in terms of Wesley's path towards freedom. Yeah, and I'll just give a brief synopsis. It turned out that in Iowa, if you were convicted of first-degree murder, it had you had to petition the governor. The governor had to seek advice once he decided who might be worthy from the legislature. So it really was a legislative decision. They debated it, the legislators, and then recommended to the governor what to do. Um, in most cases of lesser degree offenses, it was up to the governor, but not first degree murder. So it became a much more public debate than many paroles or pardons. Um, it, Wesley filed when he was young, as Tom said, the first time for a, a pardon. And that must have been the advice of other prisoners. Um, but he gained the support very early of uh, an editor of a newspaper in Iowa who had written right before Wesley was sent to prison that a young boy should not be treated as an adult, um, that it was an injustice that he was being put away. So Wesley was able somehow, and we don't really know, to get in contact with him and this man, Carl Snyder, who went on to become a famous economist um, eventually, but he helped Wesley file his appeals. Um, and eventually, Wesley was brought to the attention of a professor at um, Cornell College, which is in Iowa. And Professor James Harlan, and we talk about him at length in the book, really was a mentor and a support for Wesley throughout the 12 years that Wesley fought for a pardon. He filed four different times. You could only file once every two years. Um, and starting in 1896, he filed four times before he was able to achieve, um, a, obtain a pardon. And it really was a very controversial case in Iowa, because of course, people in Clayton County were convinced that he was innately evil and would kill again. Now, did this this ge out. this gentleman from Cornell did he meet with uh, with Wesley? I mean, they have yes, he came and went to the prison. Yeah, um, well, they exchanged letters, but he um, he did come and meet Wesley in in the prison, and at least. Um, Around 1900, as Wesley was being considered for parole by the legislature, um, Professor Harlan actually brought legislators to the prison to interview Wesley. One of the issues that came up between the in the legislature was that Wesley's case was based on how educated he had become, and how educated he became had become was indicated by the letters he had written. So some legislators said, "Well, he wasn't really the one writing those letters." So Harlan took legislators to the prison, and one of the legislators gave Wesley an assignment to write, and he wrote a little essay in front of the legislator 
and to demonstrate that he was competent and capable and that he was the author of those previous letters. But of course, what Clayton County said was, even if he is educated and wrote th those letters, it's a mask <laughs> of evil, you know, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, really, that he can pretend, he can put on this kind, educated, sophisticated man. He was a young man at that point, but behind that mask lurks this innate, criminal, depraved mind. The Clayton people are pissed off or they're small-minded or whatever, but there's no indication if he's freed, he's coming back there. Just let him go. But I, th I think one of the issues for Clayton County was the issue of local control right. and that they felt, you know, this crime happened in our county. We should decide what happens to it, not the rest of Iowa. So the county actually felt itself a little bit apart from the rest of Iowa anyway. Um, I wouldn't say it's an inferiority complex, but they did they did things politically different than much, much of Iowa. And they definitely felt like they, in this case, should be the ones to control what happened to Wesley Elkins. Well, during when the temperance laws um, went through, Clayton County did not agree with them. Um, and they kept the saloons open. So <laughs> finally, the legislature, you know, I mean, like I said, it takes two or three times. But finally, I don't know if they're bored with it. They do. They recommend and the governor signs, correct? Yes. And who is the governor at that time? Governor Cummins is his name, Alfred Cummins, who is a very progressive and popular governor. Um, I don't know that he would not have done it had the legislators not come out the way they did. But he was on Wesley's side. He made that clear. Um, during this legislative debate. And it, you know, it went through the Senate fairly easily, it, it, but in the House of Representatives, it, it, at first it did not go through. And then there was one legislator who changed. He, he said, I committed myself to voting against Wesley. I did vote against Wesley, and now I will change my vote. What was the juvenile situation? In other words, did they have juvenile courts or juvenile justice? Uh, and at what age? To, I mean, nowadays, you know, you can bump someone out of juvenile, juvenile up to adult. But that, that was when they had two things. Did they have any juvenile justice system? There were reformatories for both men, for both boys and girls in Iowa, but um, not for crime, not for the crime of murder. That was that, the law. That was the law. So that Wesley, if he had merely beaten up his parents and not killed them, he might have gone to a juvenile reformatory. And in many ways, it was lucky for Wesley that he wound up at the state penitentiary where the warden and the um, chaplain and others would mentor him. Um, his life was significantly changed for the better because he went to prison. Now, the only sad thing that I want to bring up in all of this is the burning of the library. Mm. Yeah, there was As a, a reader, Jim, you will yeah. sympathize with that. And, and that was devastating for Wesley because that's where he lived his life was in the library. He was in charge of the library. He checked out books, um, you know, retrieved the books and he had his days free to read. He was a huge reader. He loved Robert Louis Stevenson. In fact, you mentioned Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde earlier. Um, 
Wesley had read that book, <laughs> one of his favorites, along with Treasure Island. So when the library burned, it was it was devastating, and he had to be assigned to other work duties until the library came back into existence about a year, a year and a half later, again, through donations from the community. Just to go back to your point about juvenile mm -hmm. justice, um, that was changing at the time Wesley was applying for parole. Um, there was a movement, the child saving movement, um, which really had become much more pervasive. The idea that children should not be treated the same as adults. Um, and there were juvenile courts, which there were not at the time. Um, and the idea that age of an offender should be taken into account, the idea that mental capacity changes, that an impulsive act of a child doesn't necessarily mean that the child comprehends what he has done. And that was really a very positive um, movement that helped, I think, Wesley gain attention, um, both his age and the fact that he had been subject to abuse. Um, at the time he was tried, those were see not seen as mitigating factors. But gradually, as today, you know, we have more of a sense that those should be taken into account. Some of his, um, so I'm not, uh, not restrictions, but conditions for release was he had to write a letter, was it every day, every month, to the governor? For like 10 years and the other things he had to do and keep his nose clean and all that and he did everything um well as, as you note um and i want to go back to the letters just briefly because that was such an important part of our our research it, he had to write one letter a month to the governor for 10 years that's 120 letters um those letters were kept in a file um the last letter was uh, written in 1912 and patricia was the first person to ever see those letters um, she had to get special permission from the State Historical Society of Iowa to go into the files. But those letters gave us a glimpse then into his life after after um, re his release during the 10 years he was writing the letters. Um, beyond that, of course, we know now that he, um, once he had his freedom in 1912, he stopped writing letters. We don't have any first-person accounts from him at that point, but we were able to follow him. And we know that he went to St. Paul, Minnesota. He worked for the railroad um, and he reunited. This is a particularly interesting part of the whole story, I think. He reunited with the Dowden family, which was where he had lived when he was a toddler and a young boy um, with his birth mother. He had somehow managed to stay in contact with them. Um, and his stepfather and his daughter and a half brother and a niece all moved to St. Paul and Wesley essentially established a nuclear family with this um, group of people that he had not been in contact with for almost 20 years. And he supported them. He was the financial support for this family. And it is really, as Tom said, a remarkable part of the story because he had been so alone and so isolated. Um, he educated himself and clearly sought connection with people. He went out of his way to find his family members and to, as Tom said, get them to move, invite them to move. He bought a house for them, supported them um, in St. Paul. So he, you know, it's just remarkable, again, the way he changed 
And what a success for those wardens and how much credit has to be given to them and to Wesley, who obviously had amazing powers of stamina and eventually self-confidence no. and intellectual abilities. And compassion for compassion, others. Compassion, yes. Did he ever ever connect in any way with his, uh, you said there was a brother or a half-brother and the little baby he rescued? Did he ever see them again or did we were able to track them in any way? Um, he was able to, he was in contact with his half-brother who had moved to Minnesota um, with a half-sister who moved to Minnesota and he actually visited them. Spent summers with spent them. Spent summers with them. As for the infant who was in the bed at the time of the crime, we do not know what happened to her. That was the one, probably the major thing that we could not find out that we really wanted to know. We don't know if she survived. She might have gone to another family and been adopted and the name changed, but we could find nothing in the historical record. No um, indication of her death, no indication of marriage, no indication of a name change, nothing in the newspapers about what happened to that infant. So we just don't know. Is there an obit, like an official newspaper obit for him? Uh, yes. Um, he died in California, um, where he actually lived the last 32 years of his life. After he left uh, St. Paul, he went to Hawaii. He married a woman in Hawaii, and then they relocated to California. And when he died in 1961 at the age of 83, um, having seen two world wars, the Depression, um, um, he would have been alive when John Kennedy gave his speech about landing a man on the moon. He lived through an extraordinary time in American history, and he died at age uh, 90, 83. Um, and there was an obituary published in the San Bernardino Sun newspaper um, on his death. And we've visited his gravesite. We've been to his grave um, in California. And I will add that we we have that picture that you mentioned, Jim, of him as a young boy. We have several other pictures of Wesley when he was on the debate team in college, and then a really great picture that we got from one of the few descendants we were able to talk to um, of Wesley visiting his family in Iowa, his niece, and he has his arm around her, and they're in front of a car. I mean, it's a, it's a, such a good family picture showing how Wesley reunited and cared about, I mean, he was living in California at the time and he came back and this happy family picture of them. And they're, and they're in the book, the lovely picture, sir, or also the picture on the, uh, on the cover of him with his hand up. Uh, it's just the professional photograph. Uh, it's just so, so cool. And again, uh, the, the book we are wrapping up now discussion of is called the true story of young Wesley Elkins and uh, the true story for his redemption. And uh, we joked about it, but are, are you getting any interest in any let Netflix or anything like that? Have you got someone to pitch it for you? No, do you have connections, Kim? <laughs> no, I don't, but, you know, uh, it is, like I said, it's a fascinating, it gives, I think, you know, always a director is looking for something with, not only heart, but you can have just you talk about an 11 year old actor playing 11 year, you know, showing this, we can read about it, we can talk about it. We have some black and white photos of it. But to put it on screen, small screen, big screen, whatever, I think so, you know, I don't know. But uh, anyway, so I want to thank you guys, we are coming to the end of now an hour.
and uh, it's been a wonderful visit again. Do you have something that's, uh, I know these things some, often take many years to put together, but are you working on something uh, after this? Um, well, I'm working on a new book, which has no crime in it. It's a, it's a book about the 1926 baseball season. Um, and I'd written one previous book about the 1932 baseball season, a uh, book called The Called Shot. So I'm going back from true crime to baseball. And I'll say we have a website, www.midnightassassin.com. And anyone who goes to that website will be able to read about Tom's book, The Called Shot, about Midnight Assassin, our previous book, and about the plea. So Tom has a website that will also, that website will take you to, um, but his book is great. And I'll put in a plug for independent booksellers. Um, they've been hurt greatly during the pandemic. So they will have the book or be able to order it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, once again, I want to thank our guests today, Patricia Bryan and Thomas Wolf. Maybe this time I'll say Thomas Wolf and Patricia Bryan. Uh, the book is The Plea. P-L-E-A. And again, you'll find their prior book and books by Tom on the website. And again, I want to thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, Jim. It's been great. It's been a pleasure, Jim. And to my listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this slightly different episode of Murder Most Foul. I think Shakespeare put it best when he wrote, The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. For Wesley Elkins to achieve redemption, at least here on this earth, someone had to show him mercy. That was supplied by the one lone legislator who changed his vote to yea to grant parole for Wesley Elkins. And for those who feel murderers by the nature of their actions can never be redeemed, I turn to a quote from Gandhi. No human being is so bad as to be beyond redemption. So, until we meet again, take care, and for God's sakes, don't murder anyone. Uh -huh.